I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Dive, the podcast that asks who said business news needs to be all business. I'm your host, Sasha Kelly. On Melbourne Cup Day earlier this week, there was one safe bet, and that was that Michelle Bullock and the RBA would raise interest rates once again. And they did by 25 basis points or 0.25 of a percent. If like me, basis points didn't mean much to you before reading financial media. The 25 point increase to 4.35% is going to be a bitter pill for borrowers to swallow. And in some ways, it just feels like the economic stakes have never been so high. It's Friday, the 10th of November, and today I want to know, when so many of us are feeling the pinch, why is the RBA still raising rates and what effect are they hoping it'll happen? To talk about this today, I'm joined by Jennifer Duke, who's Capital Briefs Economics Correspondent. Jennifer, welcome to The Dive. Thank you for having me back. Now, it's probably the most basic question, but when so many people are already feeling enormous pressure from cost of living, you know, we're all very aware of how tight money is at the moment. Why did the RBA raise rates again? Oh, I know that it's going to annoy an awful lot of people, but that cost of living pressure is exactly why the Reserve Bank has been increasing rates and why they made the decision that they did uh, earlier this week. So it was it was a 25 basis point rise and all the big four banks were expecting it. And the, the data point that everyone had to look at was actually put out a couple of weeks ago and that were those inflation figures. Consumer price index was up about 5.4% in the year to September And that was about 0.2 percentage points higher than what the Reserve Bank was expecting. And that seems tiny to like most normal humans, but to (laughs) economists, it seems massive. And it tells them that actually inflation isn't slowing as fast as they wanted. And so they have to increase interest rates to take some more heat out of the economy. So that's why they did it as painful as it is for so many people. When we're talking about inflation, just give me a little bit of background. What are the main baskets that we're looking at that are adding to that kind of word? Because it's thrown around so much, but it's like, actually, what is it? Yeah, that's a really good question. So you're right. It is this basket of goods effect and it looks at everything from the stuff you can actually shove into a basket. So your (laughs) your groceries and um, things like that, but also haircuts and rent and fuel prices. It doesn't include mortgage interest because obviously that's sort of affected by the interest rate. So that would be kind of counterintuitive and and tricky, but it does look at all your food and tobacco, your furnishings, um, education, recreation, every time you go on holiday, even like your insurances and stuff like that, that all feeds into this alleged basket of goods <laughs> that you're shopping for each month and, and pops up in these figures. Mm, we're going to dig into property in a second, but before we do that, You did say that this was off reports that the RBA had seen that was forecast today. uh, We're recording ahead of time, but when this episode is released, there will be a new statement on monetary policy that's published. What are we expecting to learn in this paper? Do we have some idea of what the expectations of what those results are going to be? And are there some wild cards that we need to be paying attention to? 
Yeah, absolutely. So in economic circle, this is called the SOMP. Um, It's a a huge deal, (laughs) huge deal for economists. And it's about 80 pages. So it is a massive piece of work. It's only released every quarter. And what this does is it sets out the Reserve Bank's best view on what's kind of going on in the economy right now Mm -hmm. and also some forecasts for the next two years. And it's everything from wage prices, inflation, unemployment, uh, how how real wages are going to perform based on those figures, household consumption, business investment. It's a big chunk of work. I mean, those forecasts aren't always right. We've seen that happen regularly yeah. with Reserve Bank, but it is the, as uh, Lucy Ellis, the former Reserve Bank assistant governor recently described it to me, it is like the least worst best guess, if you know what I mean. So that's <laughs> kind of the way to look at it. I thought that was a terrific turn of phrase. Mm. And so basically what we know already was a little bit that came out in that interest rate announcement. So they pre- I guess, previewed some of the SOMP. They're saying that inflation's going to hit about 3.5% by the end of next year and it will be at the top of that target band. So they want it to be 2 to 3%. They'll yeah. hit the top end of that by the end of 2025. They also told us that there's going to be slightly higher than previously expected unemployment, but we'll have to see how the full range of figures comes out to see how that's going to look on a kind of half yearly basis. Mm -hmm. Um, They haven't given us much more than that, but I would say the most interesting stuff usually actually comes through the report itself. So the forecasts come in this big table at the back and everyone rushes straight to them and gets very (laughs) excited. But there's this like other 78 pages of stuff where it's like, here's our view on the international economy, here's our view on the domestic economy. And they look at things like risks in the household sector and also what's happening with China and how that might affect us. And it's a little bit more qualitative, but it's much deeper and much more interesting. Um, And also they have this massive liaison network. I don't know if many people know about this, but the Reserve Bank has these um, economists who they send out to speak to businesses on the ground across the different states. And they basically tell us what's really going on that we might not have picked up in the data right now. And that kind of comes out through this SOMP. So mm. lots and lots of stuff in there. I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> you say it's 80 pages though, but this is kind of where I find this fascinating tension in economics is that like there's all this data and then they just seem to have this really blunt and one kind of tool for all, which is just the cash rate and interest rates, whether they raise it or put it down. Is there some kind of internal pressure that they feel about the fact that that is their main tool? Look, it's interesting. I would say that in fairness, most central banks seem to have the same tool and it has mm-hmm. worked really well for us today. The Reserve Bank Review kind of showed us that it has been pretty good at keeping the economy on track. What I would say is that there does need to be more coordination with the federal government. Like if they're going to be looking at ways to relieve cost of living pressures, that has to be coordinated with the overall direction that Reserve Bank's pushing in. Otherwise, they're going to have to do things to kind of counteract that. So the more money that gets pushed in the economy from the government, the more cash that we will have when the Reserve Bank's trying to take it out by our interest rates. Like that can obviously have some interesting effects. So I think that's more kind of curious. But I would say there's been a lot more commentary now about whether this blunt tool will work when the pressures are external to Australia, when they're coming from overseas, when it isn't just consumption when it's supply chain problems, things like that. So that that is getting technical and difficult. Um, mm. And I'm sure we'll see reams of PhDs <laughs> written on the subject for years to come. <laughs> it's interesting that you said that they're working, you know, in coordination or in response to government policy. What are the kind of primary policies that are working in opposition to that at the moment? I would say right now that there's too many. I, I mean, like personally, if mm. I was to have an opinion on it, always dangerous territory when you're coming to politics. 
I would say that it looks to me as though the cost of living measures we've seen so far have been pretty, pretty targeted. The one that I'm really interested in is what happens with stage three next year, those stage three tax cuts that mm. pour quite a lot of money back into the economy. I've spoken to so many different economists about this and there is a bit of a split going on and it's all about where the economy is actually going to be by mid next year when this kicks in because if we're still running really hot on inflation, we really don't want more dollars going back into people's pockets. That seems disturbing. But if we are actually like slowing it down and some economists think that we're actually going to be in a pretty dodgy economy by mid next year, it's a technical yeah. phrase for a dodgy <laughs> economy. If that happens, then we might actually want the stimulus from the, from those extra dollars floating around. And that's before you consider, you know, should it go to richer people and all that kind of stuff. So that's to me where the big question lies at the moment. More of my chat with Jennifer in just a moment. And we turn to the age-old question of how this is going to affect property prices. 
phase when a lot of people are starting to roll off those fixed rates that they'd set back in the pandemic when interest rates were at record lows. Yeah, this topic always fills me with a little bit of fear because on the one hand, the things that you hear from the Reserve Bank sound sort of rosy. They're like, we're halfway Mm. through it. Everything seems okay. People are adjusting their budgets. But we do know there is this portion. I don't have the percentage off the top of my head either, but it was quite significant. Like it's not a majority, but to me, it's significant enough that you're worried for those households and thinking they're going to have to sell, they're going to have to put their properties in the market, something's going to have to happen. So I think there's going to be some kind of friction in this process. I just don't think it's a cliff. It's a bit of a bump. Mm. Um, Someone's previously described it to me as a bit of a speed bump. I think that's probably an appropriate description for it. Um, I hope I'm right because any kind of a mortgage cliff is disturbing for the 30% of people who have a property, pretty much anyone else who's interested in getting into the market and anyone who's related to someone who has a property with all their wealth tied up in it. So, you know, it's it's a tricky, it's a really tricky position. I would also say though that we don't really know what's going to happen with rates next year. And I think that's playing in a lot of people's minds because I don't think the Reserve Bank, even a couple of months ago, were necessarily expecting to have to do this rate hike. It's just the data has, you know, forced their hand basically. And I think that while we're now hearing all the economists say that's probably enough, probably no more, we've heard that three months ago. Mm, (laughs) Will, mm. Will this happen again? And maybe that changes that risk profile all over again. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, I've been loving the metaphors that you've brought for this, to the conversation <laughs> today. I'll say, I know it's ahead of time, but uh, today will be the day that you'll finally get to dig into that 80 page report. So I hope you have a lovely Friday reading all the forecasts <laughs> and I know we'll get you back on the show to help us decipher that in future. So thanks again for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll leave it there for today. Thank you for joining me on The Dive today. I'm going to be back in the feed on Monday talking to Bryce, my colleague here at Equity Mates, who wants to dig into what happened at the end of the Sam Bankman-Fried trial. Biggest financial fraud case of all time. We're going to get into the nuts and bolts of what he's been found guilty of. Until then, thanks so much for joining me today. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.